Hey, how many of you uh, know that our senior pastor, Pastor Chris, is a devout Penn State fan? How many of you know that? Okay. Well, what you might not realize is that Chris was scheduled to speak this morning. <laughs> and he was going to give the message. But about two weeks ago, the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And the word of the Lord came unto Chris and said, Chris, your Nittany Lions will surely suffer defeat in the shoe. And, the Lord, and Chris, believing the word of the Lord, realized he'd be grieving this morning. So he asked me to give the message. So here I am. <laughs> and uh, we're going through the book of Romans. And if you would uh, turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 8, and if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 944, Romans chapter 8. And would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day, a day that you've made, and we rejoice and we're glad in it. Father, we thank you for your word. We know it's true. And Lord, I ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning, open the scriptures to us. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts. And Lord, that where there needs to be encouragement, you would encourage. Where there needs to be convictions built, you would build them. And we ask that, Lord, you would guide, direct, lead this time for your glory. And I ask that you'd speak to each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we've been going through Romans chapter 8 in a series called Life in the Spirit. And that's a good title because if you read through Romans chapter 8, you'll notice that the Holy Spirit is mentioned nearly 20 times in this chapter. And as we read through it, we realize it's a chapter of victory. But if you go back and read chapter 7... We find that the Holy Spirit is only mentioned once, and it's a chapter of defeat. And so we realize just how much we need the Holy Spirit to help us live the Christian life. I remember hearing a story about the great boxing legend Muhammad Ali, and he was on a plane and he didn't fasten his seatbelt. And the stewardess, not realizing who he was, came up to him and said, Sir, you need to fasten your seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali looked up at the stewardess and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the stewardess looked down at him and said, Superman don't need no airplane. Fasten your seatbelt. Well, you know, none of us are Superman. In fact, we're actually very, very far from it. And hopefully as we go through life, we humble ourselves and we realize how much we need God. And how much we need His help. And He provides that help when we come to Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And as we learn to walk in the Spirit and be led by the Spirit. He gives us victory over sin and victory over the devil. And the Holy Spirit gives us power to live the Christian life. Now this morning as we conclude this chapter. The Apostle Paul starts off with a question that leads to a series of other questions. Now, if you would, look at verse 31, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And Paul asks this. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, just think about that for a moment. Just let that sink in. If God is for us, who can be against us? Think of it. God is for you. God is for me. Now, you might say in a real sense, God is on our side. He's for us. You know, some people think that God takes the side of a certain candidate or a certain political party, maybe a certain nation or sports team. Well, you know, I don't know about all that, but I do know this. As Christians, God's on our side. God is for us. Maybe you've heard it before. It's, it's an old saying, but it really is true. And it goes like this. If it's just you and God, you're in the majority. God plus one is a majority. You know, that's true. Now, if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? And by the way, this is a rhetorical question. It doesn't matter how you ask the question, you get the same answer. For example, okay, if God is for me, who then could be against me? The answer? No one. If God is for us, what could be against us? What's the answer? Nothing. Now, as a follower of Christ, you may be sitting there thinking, sorry, but it feels like there's a lot of things against me. I feel like culture's against me. This world is against me. Temptations against me. Sins against me. My own flesh is against me. The devil's against me. And all that is true. But what I believe Paul is wanting us to see here is that when God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. It doesn't matter how many are against us. It doesn't matter when God is for us. However, this could raise another question. How do I know that God is really for me? I mean, how do I really know? Because sometimes in this world, it doesn't feel like he is. So how do I really know? How can I be sure that God is for me? Well, in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, there are at least three things that Paul tells us. At least three things that prove that God is for us. The first proof that God is for us is that God gave us his son. God gave us his son. Now look at the very next verse, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How we not also with him graciously give us all things. Now think of this. What is the greatest need that every one of us have? What's our greatest need? The greatest need we have is we need a savior. Because we're all sinners and we all need forgiveness. We need a savior. That's our greatest need. And God provided for our greatest need when he sent Jesus to die for all of our sins. And to offer us forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. So here's the point. If God sent his one and only beloved son to meet the greatest need we will ever have. Won't he meet every other need that we have? Of course he will. At least Paul thought so. Paul said in Philippians 4.19, Philippians 4, he said, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He'll give us everything we need to grow in Christ and to serve Christ and to live for him. And here's one thing for sure. 
If God gave his son for us to die for our sins on a cross, then he will never hold back his gift of salvation from us. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure that you've ever really came to Christ, you're not sure that you've ever really committed your life to Christ and placed your faith in him, you can be sure of this. If you ask him to forgive you, he will. If you ask him to come into your heart and into your life, he will. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So we know that God is for us because God gave his one and only son for us. And then secondly, we know that God is for us because Jesus lives to intercede for us. He lives to intercede for us. In the next few verses, Paul paints a courtroom scene by asking some more questions. Now look at verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, according to James Merritt, that question, that statement, who shall bring any charge against us? In the Greek, it's just one phrase, and it's a legal term. It actually means to call in, and it refers to an official summons to appear in a court of law. To face an accusation that's been brought against us. So if Paul asks, who shall bring any charge against us? Who is he talking about? Well, sometimes people bring charges against us. Sometimes unbelievers do. They accuse us of things. They accuse Jesus of things that wasn't true. Sadly, sometimes it's fellow believers who accuse us of doing wrong. And sometimes we may be innocent. And sometimes we may be guilty. So sometimes our conscience brings charges. Our sins bring charges. But the biggest accuser of all is Satan. In fact, he acts like a prosecuting attorney who's against us every time we do something wrong. The Bible tells us in Revelations 12.10, it says that Satan is called the accuser of our brothers who day and night accuses us before our God. Think of it. It says he accuses us before God day and night. So here's what happens. As believers, when we do wrong, Satan drags us into God's courtroom and he makes his charge. And here's the bad news. When Satan brings his charge, makes these accusations to God about our sins, you know what? He's usually right. He may not be lying. In fact, it might be the only time the devil ever tells the truth. Because we do fail. And we do mess up. And we do sin. So the, drag, so the devil drags us into God's courtroom. He brings all these charges against us. So what's our defense? And then Paul reminds us of this in verse 33. It is God who justifies It is God who justifies. Now, the word justifies is another legal term, and it literally means we're declared innocent, not guilty, to be free from blame. And then look again at verse 34. Paul asks, who is to condemn? 
Jesus Christ is the one who died, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul asked another question, who is to condemn? And the answer, no one. No one. In fact, if you're reading in the NIV, it actually comes right out and says, no one. Well, how could it be no one? It's because Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. There's no one who can condemn us. Not when Jesus is interceding for us. Now, imagine this picture, if you will. You're in God's courtroom. And then Satan brings all these accusations against you. And you know he's right. You know you're guilty. You know you've sinned. But Jesus is there, and he's your defense attorney. And oh, by the way, he's the best defense attorney in all the universe. He's never lost a case. And he's there interceding for you. And Satan is there bringing all these charges, all these accusations against you. So what does Jesus do? He just holds up two nail-scarred hands and shows them to the Father. And the gavel comes down and the verdict is read, not guilty. And it echoes throughout all of eternity. And God says, this child of mine is not guilty. He's completely righteous in my eyes. He's been washed in the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. Case dismissed. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've confessed and repented of your sins, if you've come to the cross and received Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then all of your sins have been forgiven. All of them. You have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ when you placed your faith in Him. Have you done that? Have you placed your faith in Jesus and in Him alone and what He did for you on the cross? The story is told of a time when Martin Luther, in a dream, found himself being attacked by Satan. The devil unrolled a long scroll containing a list of all of Luther's sins. And he held it before him. And on reaching the end of the scroll, Luther asked the devil, is that all? Oh, no, said the devil. There are many, many more sins. And then he unrolled a second scroll. And when he came to the end of that, Luther said, is that all? No, the devil said, there's more. And then a third scroll. But now the devil had no more. And then Luther exclaimed triumphantly, now right on each of them, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. There's not a sin that you and I have ever committed that the blood of Jesus can't wash away. Always remember when the devil comes with his accusations, remember that our case was settled out of court long ago at the cross. Always remember how this eighth chapter of Romans begins when it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took our condemnation on the cross, took the judgment in hell that we deserve, and God's court will never, ever condemn us. We know that God is for us because Jesus rose from the dead. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And then thirdly, we know God is for us because of his everlasting love. Jeremiah the prophet wrote, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
I've drawn you with unfailing kindness. God's love will never leave us. God's love will never fail us. And then Paul asked yet another question. Verse 35 through 37. He asked, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice he says in all these things, anything we're going to have to face in this life, trials, persecution, hardship, criticism, maybe a lost job, maybe lost money, a spouse who leaves, sickness. It doesn't matter what it is. Paul says in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. No, unfortunately, following Christ doesn't guarantee a trial-free life. Believers have always had to face hardships and suffering, as Chris spoke about last week. And Jesus said, in this world, you'll have trouble. And we've all experienced it. No, as followers of Christ, we're not immune to temptation, tribulation, tragedy, or trouble. But here's what God has promised those who love him. He's promised to give us victory over all the troubles we must face in this life and to work every one of them together for good. That's what God's promised. Why? Because God is for us. And he loves us so very, very much. And then Paul concludes this chapter with one of the most comforting promises in all the Bible. And he tells us something that he's absolutely sure of. He tells us something that he's convinced of. Look at verses 38 and 9. Paul says, for I am sure. And you read some translations, it says convinced. I think most translations say convinced. Paul says, for I am sure. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now just think of this world today. I mean, there's insecurity everywhere. Terrorism, war, rogue nations developing nuclear weapons. There's financial insecurity, natural disasters. There's racial tension, uh, cultural and political upheaval. But in the midst of all this, we have one thing we can count on for sure. One thing that's absolutely guaranteed. God will never stop loving us. His loving arms are wrapped around us and he'll never let us go. He holds us in his hands and he loves us with an everlasting love. No matter what happens, nothing can separate us from his love. You know, God's love is so different from ours, isn't it? Most human love has limits. Most human love is conditional. Human love says, I will love you if. And I'll stop loving you if. And we see people stop loving one another 
uh, every day for just any reason. A married man says, I just don't love her anymore. A wife says, I just don't love him anymore. Friends quit loving one another. Family members quit loving one another and split up. Parents and children sometimes stop loving one another. And most of us have experienced at least one time or another that human love is limited. Human love is conditional. But God's love is everlasting. And it never gives up on us. And it never fails. Oh yes, God will discipline us when we sin. He'll discipline us. And He knows how to make it hurt. But He will never stop loving us. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. God will still love you. It doesn't matter. We could desert God like the disciples did. And God will still love us. We could deny God like Peter did. God will still love us. We could doubt God like Thomas did. God will still love us. It doesn't matter. You know, I've shared this with people, this passage before in Romans 8. And I've heard some people say, well, nothing can separate us from God's love except us. I mean, we can separate ourselves from God's love, they say. But that's not what this says. Let's look at it again. Paul says, for I am sure, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nothing now, nothing in the future, nothing we might be worried about in the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, when we read this list, it's as if God is saying, I've included everything that you could possibly think of that people might say might separate you from my love. There are no loopholes here. Think of it. In this short passage, Paul literally turned the universe upside down and tried to shake out something that could end God's love for us. And he couldn't find anything. Not anything. You may be separated from a friend. You may be separated from a family member. You may be separated from your spouse or from your parents or from your kids. But if you know Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God lives within you, lives in your heart, you will never, ever, ever be separated from God's love. There's nothing inside of us and there's nothing outside of us that could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, we might ask, how can this really be true? I mean, how can it really be true? Because if we're honest, sometimes we have trouble believing that a God who is so perfect could love us who are so imperfect. And sometimes we may be tempted to ask, does God really love me? Does he love me? Because deep down inside, there's something we all know is true. We're not worthy of his love. We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve God's love that sent Jesus to a cross to suffer and bleed and die for us. But the Bible promises the Bible assures us that absolutely nothing 
could ever separate us from God's love. To close this morning, I I want to just give you two biblical reasons why this is true. Two reasons why nothing could ever separate us from God's love. First, we know that nothing could ever separate us from God's love because God holds us in his hand. Look what Jesus said in John 10, 28. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. You see, when we came to Christ and placed our faith in him, he put us in his hand. And if that's not enough security, the father puts his hand over us, too. So the father and the son have a double grip on us. That's the picture here. Let me ask you something. Do you think the devil would take away your salvation if he could? You know he would. If he could, but he can't. He can't because God holds us in his hand and no one can snatch us from his hand. No one. You see, it's not a matter of how tightly we hold on to God, but rather how tightly he holds on to us. God holds us in his hand. So one reason nothing can separate us from his, his love is because he holds us in his hand. And then another reason is that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Think of it. The Holy Spirit seals us. The Holy Spirit protects us. The Holy Spirit keeps us. You know, it's one of the most encouraging, thrilling thoughts that I've ever read in the Bible that to think that the Holy Spirit sealed me. The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee. It's his guarantee assuring us of our inheritance to come. It's a guarantee that one day we'll be with him in heaven. If you're a believer, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've placed your faith in him, God holds you in his hands. He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit and nothing can ever touch you. Nothing can ever separate you from his love. Nothing. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love, for your everlasting love, love that was demonstrated on the cross where you died for our sins. Lord, you could not have done anything more to show us that you love us than to go to the cross and take our place and die for us. And Father, I just ask this morning if there's someone here And they've never really experienced your love. If there's someone here who's not really sure they've ever really received you. As their Lord and Savior. 
they're not sure they've ever really committed their life to you. And they're not sure their sins are forgiven. They're not sure that if they died today, they'd go to heaven. Will you help them right now, Lord, come to you to put their faith in you, Lord Jesus? To right now, just pray a prayer from their heart to say, oh, God, I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sin. But Jesus, I believe you're the Savior. You died for me and rose from the dead. And I want you to come into my heart. Into my life. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to know that I'm going to heaven. I want a relationship with you. Would you help them just to pray right now? That from their heart. Father, thank you that when we came to you. And we called on you. You saved us. And you came to live within us through the Holy Spirit. And thank you that you've sealed us with your spirit. And you hold us in your hands and you'll never, ever let us go. And thank you that nothing could ever separate us from your love. And Lord, I just ask that right now you'd help each of us. Give us grace to go out and share that love with everyone we can. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.